Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is Wisconsin's Morning News. Here's your host, Vince Petrano. Just about 10 minutes after 8 on this Tuesday morning, Wisconsin's Morning News. Greg Pancake Hill normally produces the program. He's off one more day today. we got Adam Roberts in the house. Eric Bilstead of Vince Petrano here with you until 9 o'clock. I want to start with the shooting, Eric, following Milwaukee's massive Juneteenth celebration, which on all other accounts was widely successful and celebrated, played on a Martin Luther King Drive just north of downtown. And a chance encounter with a person kind of framed my thoughts on this this morning. I was on my way out of our offices here at the Avenue in our studios in downtown Milwaukee, and I ran into a guy I hadn't met before, but he works in one of the other offices here in our area. So we're in one of those places where there are a lot of different businesses, right? We kind of have some common space where we interact. And I hadn't met him before, but he introduced himself because we have some shared acquaintances. And he's African-American young professional. He said, hey, Vince, my name, you know, we exchanged hellos. And said, nice to meet you talked a little bit and you know as i was on my way out and he was heading over he just for no reason just offered i just came from juneteenth and he was so excited like he was probably about two o'clock in the afternoon he'd been there for the parade and the festival and whatever so then we talked about that a little bit i'm like yeah eric and i were watching a lot of the video in the studio we had the audio from a lot of people there from our partners at 1017 the truth where they're all day broadcasting live i'm like yeah it looked like a lot of people and he, he comes over, again, unsolicited, breaks out his phone. He's like, look at this video. <laughs> and he's showing me. And he was just so proud of the event. And he was so excited that it was so widely celebrated, how successful it so was. Such great energy. Yeah. All day long. And then, you know, I went about the rest of my day. And the first I heard about the shooting that played out, what, some about 20 minutes after the event had officially wrapped up. And I started reading details of it. And that was the first guy I thought of. Is a guy I just met for no reason, just joyful about an event that he had attended, decided to share that with someone he didn't even know and showed me the video and was really excited about it. And that was the first guy I thought of is I felt badly for him. And the next guy I thought of was Telly Hughes, who earlier in the day had been with us, our teammate over at 1017 The Truth, talking about how Juneteenth was not a thing in his household growing up. He's African-American, if you don't know Telly, and said, like, this wasn't a thing that I that I grew up with. And he was so grateful that it has come to the forefront. Talked about his brother who works in the media in Florida, who did a couple of part series on what Juneteenth is and how he's enjoyed learning about that. Even flew to Texas. Yeah. Next guy I thought of was Jason Smith. You've heard him on the radio here with us. Another one of our teammates does some stuff for 1017 The Truth as well. He was down there sending back video and he was like so excited. Yeah, I was texting with him. He was loving it. He, and he wanted to share with you, not even just for work, like just you could tell in the text that he was sending you. That it was phenomenal, I think was his word. It, it was his this word. This is phenomenal. If you've listened to us and you've heard Jason on the air, like he's, he's a young guy and he's so fun. and he's, It's phenomenal. He was super excited. Well, the mayor had been saying over and over and over again, even during the opening ceremonies, if you call it opening ceremonies, but what you know, the program they had, he goes, this is getting bigger and bigger every year. The vendors, more and more vendors are coming out. More and more people are coming out, and they're celebrating that. Sherwin Hughes, another one of our teammates at 1017 The Truth, and he's the one who actually posted video. Now, could Have we established whether that was his video? Was he there in the mix? I know he posted it. That I don't know. Another one of our teammates who was right down there in the mix, 
Um, Kyle Wallace, you've heard him on the air with us as well, the program director for 1017 The Truth. So my mind immediately went to all of these people that, that I know and work with and the pride that they were feeling in this community event and how positive it was. And I just went, how frustrated they have to be because the news this morning isn't, wasn't the parade fantastic. The news this morning wasn't thousands and thousands of people came to this part just north of Milwaukee to celebrate this day and to enjoy each other's company and to talk about unity and good things. And this is the story. And I don't apologize for it being the story because this happened. So I, I don't suggest that we shouldn't be talking about it, but I was frustrated for those friends and teammates and people that we know, including a guy I just met, how frustrating it must be for them that this is what came out of that and what we're talking about this morning. And I'm sad for them. A few of the details that I want to share with you as we work through some of the things that we've learned. Six people shot. It was the massive celebration that uh, wrapped up but about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. The shooting was somewhere around 4.20. You had Milwaukee police chief, again, in a familiar refrain. Milwaukee, what's going on with our children? That's Chief Jeffrey Norman in a news conference uh, hours after the event had played out. Details in the top of the hour news, as Eric indicated, six injured teenagers, all ranging in age from 14 to 19. According to witnesses, the shooting stemmed from some sort of fight that broke out from a couple of girls. Just a beef. And a couple other things I want to pull out. Uh, Here's Milwaukee Mayor Cavalier Johnson, just so frustrated. If you are an adult or a young person who's got your hands on a gun and you are ill-tempered, right, don't come to stuff like this. Don't come. Get the help that you need. And we are more than willing to help you to make the connections that you need to get the help that you need. Um, but if you're going to fire a weapon off, if you are intent on causing death or harm or destruction, then do not come because you do not have the right. You don't have the right to steal the joy that this community felt today. And I like that response from the mayor. And I know we're all tired of hearing the same news conference. I said as much, I led with that, Eric, and I know you guys tease me for working on my week off, but I went and moderated a forum for the Milwaukee Press Club about violent crime in Milwaukee, and you know, the common theme was frustration from city leaders, and I led, I kind of offered, as like, let me give you an opening statement, because sometimes we in the media are criticized for sensationalizing violence in an effort to draw listeners or viewers or ratings mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. and I said... I will tell you all, I am personally exhausted talking about this. I would way rather talk about almost anything else to start our 8 o'clock hour, right? And so there was that frustration from me, certainly from city leaders. But another thing I took away from that forum, Eric, representing the Milwaukee Police Department, was Assistant Chief Nicole Waldner. And I know I shared with you some of her comments that you were able to play in the news last week. But she talked about teenagers fighting and beefing, as you said, right, getting into stuff, that's not new. As old as the hills, right? right? We all fought when we were kids and teens and young adults. Social media certainly feeds that fire in a way that we didn't have growing up when we had things. But she said the difference, and Chief Waldner has been on the street for a long time with MPD. She said the difference is now everybody is armed. Parents, know where your guns are. The amount of guns on the street is shameful. Like, when I started in 1996, we, if someone, we went out on patrol and someone got a gun and a Crown Royal bag with some 
weed and some money or some crack or whatever. I was like, oh, you got a gun. Now, everybody has a gun. And just to be clear, the assistant chief did not go off into some Second Amendment thing or we need to stop gun sales or she didn't even take it there. She just was stating a fact. And I've heard that from other MPD mm-hmm. officers. Yep, you too. have as well. Me too. Right? Yep. You know cops who are on the street and they report to us we are outgunned. There are more guns in the hands of criminals than we have. The other thing Assistant Chief Waldner had said is what they're seeing more of is weapons that have been modified to become near fully automatic. So you take a semi-automatic, which is legal to have and buy, and she goes, you can go on YouTube, and in a matter of minutes, there are how-tos on how to make that semi-automatic almost a full, fully automatic, where you just pull the trigger down and it rapid fires. Mm-hmm. She goes, you can tell. I can hear it. It sounds different. And they're seeing more and more of that on the streets. She also indicated that they've seen or are aware of 3D printed guns. So (laughs) even evading your usual gun purchase, your usual gun, whatever, someone can 3D print a gun. You obviously have to have the resources to do that and know how. But that's another thing that they're combating. But our, our men and women in the Milwaukee Police Department are outgunned on the streets of Milwaukee. And I'm not trying to take it any further than that. I'm just stating that fact. Another person that talked at that forum that I was at, I know you ran some of this as well, Fire Chief Lipsky, and he was there. My first question to him was just about the human toll because it's his first responders, his men and women who are out there in the med units that come on gunshot victims. I mean, imagine seeing that on the street where you live, right? Someone shot on your street, and they see that every day. So he was talking about the toll that it takes not only on his first responders who are dealing with that, but obviously the human toll that he tried to relate to people like this is people laying in the street, shot, and and fighting for their lives. And he also kind of gave this staunch defense of the Milwaukee Police Department. With you know, the whole point of this forum was let's look for answers, and there really, frankly, weren't a lot of them. But he said, if you're looking to the Milwaukee Police Department to fix it, can't do it alone. They can't. They can't possibly solve multi generational familial breakdowns. They can't solve all of these things when they arrive after the crime happens. I mean, that's probably, take that out of context and do what you want with it, but stop, stop looking at them like, well, it's the police, so what's the solution? If they had it, they would have done it. They're trying as hard as they possibly can. What do you want? What's acceptable to you? What's your threshold of enough is enough? I mean, I think we're at it, right? Enough is enough, but how many times can you say it? What do you do from here? Where do you go? And the problem is the people who are asking that question, like, we're not the ones carrying guns around. The fire chief, the police chief, well, obviously for his job, but, you know, the the community leaders who are saying enough is enough, they're not the ones who are shooting each other on the streets. It's somewhere else. And so like, what can they do? What can I do? What can you do to intervene and create some positive momentum here? A couple of thoughts. And at least one thing that stood out to me in a write-up of what happened yesterday, where there may be some momentum of something you can do. I'll share that with you next on Wisconsin's morning news. 824 on Wisconsin's Morning News. We're talking about the shooting yesterday in Milwaukee. Six people shot, all teenagers, started as a fight, escalated. One person at least started shooting. 
I guess still outstanding from Milwaukee police is any additional word on, they said, at least one other, if not multiple other suspects whom they're still looking for. Yep, still searching. This was as of yesterday. So we'd expect maybe a detail or two being added to this story later today. Uh, this text, to start off my next point, I've carried a gun most of my adult life besides a family business, worked as a doorman and bouncer, security in bars, concerts, never had to pull my gun out, never seen a gun used any place I worked. I diffused a few sticky situations, but I think people were not as uptight as they are now. I think it, it bears repeating because we've talked about the gun problem. We've talked about guns being on the streets. And again, that's a fact that police report to us. I have a lot of friends who I've said this before. I'm not a gun owner. I don't want to learn how to safely use it, keep a firearm. That's just not a thing for me. I don't plan to use it for sport, but I have many friends who hunt, others who shoot for sport. My grandfather was a sport shooter, shot trap, shot target shoot, you know, all that stuff. Not my deal, but I know a lot of people and I don't know a single person personally who's ever used a gun for protection or used a gun on another person or even threatened another person with a gun. So Yes, guns being there, it's half the problem, if not more of it, because everybody's got one. But obviously, and I don't think city leaders are shying away from this, it's coming down to human behavior. Yeah, the the fighting has been happening since the dawn of time. Since ever. There's always going to be a beef or two between two people. But what they're finding now is that with so many of these kids carrying a weapon with them, we're seeing more issues like yesterday. So if that's already the case, you have young people already armed, Young people already willing to commit criminal acts upon one another. You know, what is the intervention that can come from other people, from law-abiding citizens, from lawmakers, from city leaders, whatever? There's one thing, one thing that I read in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel write-up of what happened yesterday that I thought was it was interesting. It stood out to me. And it's uh, Milwaukee activist Vaughn Mays, and I know people have varying different uh, opinions about what Mays does in the community. I don't know him personally, but he's a community activist. He's been out there. He leads marches. He does other things. He's also part of this thing called Comforce MKE, which the Journal Sentinel describes as engaging in violence interruption. And according to the JS piece, uh, Mays was out there with his team specifically targeting the area around, let me see, Rose Park, which is nearby, because of a shooting and fights last year following the Juneteenth celebration. And Mays said he is incensed that there would be violence on the holiday after last year's incidents. And then here was the part that got me. He said, prior to shots ringing out Monday, quote, we had been breaking up fights for maybe an hour, an hour and a half, Mays said. So when we talk about intervention, is there a way that, you know, like, what do we do? Is there a way that some of these community organizations, and maybe it comes from the Office of Violence Prevention in the city, I think they've rebranded that now, it's got a new name, but same deal. Are there ways that you can get people actually out in these situations trying to settle these beefs or break them up or lower the temperature level before firearms get pulled? Closest thing I've seen to something that might have an impact. Who knows how many, you know, if Mays is out there breaking up fights, how many of those could have turned into more had they not been there? So maybe there's some positive direction there, some positive momentum. number of people texting in about you know the justice system. And I did note, and it was noted, at the Milwaukee Press Club event on violent crime. You had Assistant Chief of Police for Milwaukee. You had Office of Violence Prevention. Ashanti Hamilton was there. You had the Fire Chief. And Dr. Ken Harris was also on the panel talking about the community impact and his experience as a former law enforcement officer. He didn't have the judiciary represented. Didn't have the... 
district attorney's office. He didn't have judges. And that's certainly part of this. Well, and one of their issues, though, is staffing. And they do not have the people, just like in every other industry, being able to move people through to, to do the operations of any company, whether it's something in the DA's office, whether it's something in the jail, the House of Corrections. They don't have the staffing. There is a soft on crime criticism of, in particular, the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office, and I think that's a fair argument to raise. There's a soft on crime um, criticism of the judiciary here in Milwaukee County as well. Are we sentencing people? Are we holding people accountable? And I think those are all important questions. But to your point, too, the assistant chief said, because I brought up, like, I hear from cops, they arrest the same people all the time. Like, they're just back out on the street, and that's got to be frustrating for, for you and for her department. And not necessarily in defense of the judiciary, but she did say, she said, post-COVID, like, they lost a lot of court reporters. They got so backlogged that some of these things aren't necessarily in the hands of prosecutors to make these decisions, that also there are some real-life things. The jail won't take some people you know, accused of various not, mm-hmm. non-high-level crimes because there's no place to put them. So there are larger issues that need to be solved outside of just lock everybody up. But that certainly is a component, and it's got to be looked at. 829 on Wisconsin's Morning News. on Wisconsin's Morning News. Again, repeating the breaking news, the president's son, Hunter Biden, agreed to plead guilty to multiple misdemeanor charges following a five-year Department of Justice investigation. We'll have uh, reaction and additional information coming up from ABC News at the top of the hour. I want to talk a little bit more about the Titanic situation. You have this tourist group. What is it, five people that were on a tourist? Yes, one of these uh, submarines, the, the submersibles, if you will, that will go and give people. You can buy this. I think they were saying it was two hundred fifty k. It's like extreme tourism, yeah, if so you will, for a seat on this very small size of a minivan submersible that will, after a ship takes you out near the wreckage of the Titanic, this will go underwater and give you the opportunity to see it with your own eyes, all the way down to the bottom to see the wreckage in this special vehicle. It has a much larger window. Um, um, that enables um, paying guests uh, to view the remarkable scene around them, as well as um, large video screens, massive lights and cameras. So that's National Geographic editor Kristen Romey discussing what this vehicle is. Well, here's the issue. It it's went gone. out on Sunday, and they haven't seen it since. The, the ship brought out the submersible. It went underwater to go see the Titanic, and it has not returned, and they lost Connection to it. Ocean Gate says a crew of five has enough oxygen to survive for 96 hours. That would be until approximately Thursday. Experts say if they're alive on the ocean floor, the crew would be asked to sleep as much as possible. The submersible is supposed to be able to float to the surface if there's an issue. So if it floats to the surface, that would be helpful. There's nothing to indicate that it has done that. They don't even really know. I mean, they have aircraft out there, some of them dropping sonar equipment, others actually looking to see if this thing has come up. The Titanic, by the way, is 13,000 feet below. That's where the actual wreckage site is. So you have 96 hours, and now the rush is on to see if you can figure out where this tiny little vehicle is. The fact is, you're looking for something the size of a minivan in the bottom of the North Atlantic. Um, so it's it's hard to say, but they certainly have a challenge ahead of them. One of the other things uh, in that report you heard from ABC's Lionel Moriza just got me was they're telling him, hey, okay, we need you to sleep. 
You know, that that's You're likely right. what the, the pilot would be telling them because they need to conserve their oxygen. I don't know how in the world they would be able to do that right now. Then or ever again. Right. So what stands out to me, though, is, you know, Lionel also said in his report, if they're at the bottom of the ocean, you know, if they're on the ocean floor, here's what they can do to try to locate it. Mm-hmm. If they're on the ocean floor right now, prospects are very dim. Yes, it would be very difficult to bring it up, even if they discovered it now. The U.S. and Canadian Coast Guards have been coordinating with this search. Flights will also resume this morning. Now, another option discussed would be trying to pull it up with a claw attached to a ship. But one expert described that as trying to get a toy with a claw out of an arcade machine. Yeah, you know how difficult that is. So if they're going to try to use some kind of claw 13,000 feet down... And you can't just transfer. It's not like you can swim from one to the other or put you can't on dive scuba there. gear. You can't do any Too of that. Too much pressure. I mean, it's, uh, you could argue that exploring the ocean floor 13,000 feet below is more dangerous than it is to go to space. I mean, there's just so much, there's so many factors here. Just the pressure alone. You are looking at pressure that's 400 times what it is on the surface of the Earth. So everything's just trying to crush whatever is down there to begin with. So I I don't know what to make of this. If they're going to have much success with this, God, I hope they are able to find the submersible and at least give it a shot. Um, it does not look good to me, right. knowing that they lost connection. They have not heard from or seen or know any whereabouts of this submersible after like about an hour on Sunday. I think only hope has to be if it's at the surface right now for a number of reasons, not the least of which is if they... If they even found it, which is not a foregone conclusion, if they even found it on the ocean floor, the difficulty in trying to bring it up with the clock ticking right until Thursday morning, those prospects are dim. Also worth mentioning, like, why didn't it resurface? If it's designed to resurface when there's trouble, why didn't it? Five people are on board. Among those believed to be missing is British billionaire and Guinness World Record holder Hamish Harding. Uh, one of his friends spoke to CNN, also speaking to CBS. The last thing I said to him was Godspeed, and I wished him luck with his dive. That's uh, Yannicka Mickelson. She has explored with him in the past. She's a cinematographer. Right now, I am nervous and very scared. It's not good. It, it really isn't good. It it will be a miracle if the crew returns alive. Yeah. I, and unfortunately, too, don't forget. It's not like it's just, think about like trying to find something on a lake floor, you know, here in lake country or somewhere, you know, it, how difficult that is. You dropped your keys just offshore because right. you're fishing off the pier or whatever. Right, and you got rocks, finding that, you got right? rocks, you got seaweed and whatnot. Imagine miles upon miles of Titanic debris, 13,000 feet down. It's not like it's just a flat floor down there with nothing else. And they said as big as a minivan, right, is what they're it's looking the for? the size, yeah, it's a very small submersible, yeah, the size of a car. So best-case scenario would be sometime this morning they discover that submersible did, in fact, as designed, rise to the surface, and then perhaps there's hope. Got an eye on that one. 849 on Wisconsin's Morning News. You're going to hear some similarities between our bumper music here and what we're talking about next. There's a musical that at least got its start in development here in Milwaukee, entirely fitting through Milwaukee Repertory Theater, which will have the world premiere of a musical called Run, Bambi, Run. Yes, they made a musical and story about the life of Lorencia Bembenek. 
And the music was produced by one of the members of the Violent Femmes. And you'll hear, I've got a cut here that uh, Milwaukee Rep offered me from, this is, so this isn't your standard musical. This is what they call a rock musical, E. Okay. So, ooh, obviously there's, uh, you've heard of rock opera sure, or these kind yeah. of things. So the music, the brand of music in the story that they tell is going to be part of the story. And it's, well, here it is. One, two, three, four. We'll definitely hear a Femmes feel to it here in a moment. Okay, so Gordon Gano of the Violent Femmes is responsible for music and definitely got that sound to it. Little Femmes sound. Right, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And this is just one of the songs. So. What is the story that they tell? I talked with Chad Bauman, executive director of the uh, Milwaukee Repertory Theater, and he said basically they tell the whole story. So, folks who are my age... That's a long story. There's a lot there. Yeah, right. If you're my age, you remember this story and how it came about. Because I was a kid then, but I remember my parents being super into it. There was the trial, Lorenzo Bembenek. They always call her a Playboy bunny. She had a short stint as a waitress at the old Playboy Club in Lake Geneva. And thus, forever was branded Playboy Bunny. Yeah. She was very attractive. It was a Milwaukee police officer. She got married, I believe, to another cop. And then was accused of killing her new husband's then ex-wife. And a lot of people believed that she was framed. There was the you know, sort of blue wall of silence. People weren't talking. And she was convicted. She went to Tachita. That's the prison in Fond du Lac. Escaped from prison. On the run for, I believe, months and then was captured in Canada. Now, didn't she lose a leg, too, somewhere along the line? Yeah, so she was eventually let out. She pleaded guilty later to a reduced charge of second-degree murder and also was given time served after that plea. So she was let out of prison then custody, I believe, in the early 90s and then kind of lived out her remaining days. And, yeah, I believe she lost part of her leg. And then towards the end, remember, she was going to be like on the Dr. Phil show. Yeah. And she like tried to escape the Dr. Phil show. Like there was mm. something where she jumped out a window and became injured. I remember TMJ4's Mike Jacobs uh, in one of the last interviews I know of with Ben Benick at the time. She passed away a little more than 10 years ago now, just the age of 52. Well, they've turned her whole story, the trial the escape, all of that, into a musical that was in part developed in a sort of an incubator with Milwaukee Repertory Theater, and it will have its world premiere in September here in Milwaukee. I did also ask Chad um, from the rep, I'm like, what about the sensitivity factor? Like, this is Milwaukee. Like, surely there are people who know Lori Bimbenek who are friends, if not family, still here in the area. Like, you want to be sensitive. I'm not making a joke of this. And he's like, no, it's not a joke. It's the story. It's a It's a true crime story. And he also says, we don't reach in the show, the, the playwrights do not reach a conclusion as to her innocence ah, or guilt. Okay. So that's still left up to you. But he said, we're, you know, our goal was to, to be accurate with the story and just portray it on stage with the music, again, from uh, Gordon Gano of the Violent Femmes. There's a special sale today. It's like 25% off tickets that are on sale right now for the show. September 13th, I believe, is the world premiere. So it runs into September and October at Wonky Rep this fall. 
25% off tickets today. You can get them at milwaukeerep.com or else the box office starting at 9 o'clock in person or by phone. 25% off tickets for the show. It's called Run Bambi Run. I definitely want to see it. One, because I think the music is really intriguing. Rep always does amazing productions, but also to get back into there, a few of those like memories that I have of the story in bits and pieces, right? But there's so much there that I'm, that I'm missing. I know the fill in some of the blanks. Yeah. And I remember interviewing, even when I came back to town as a reporter, then at TMJ four interviewing people that were close to that case, when there'd be some sort of alleged new development or something else that they learned, here's more evidence to prove that Lori was, was not guilty. And, there's just so much there, Eric. It was so hard to to try to decipher as a reporter, like, where do I start with this? Right. But definitely, if you're my age or a little bit older, um, you, you remember that story playing out. I think there's a story about how TMJ4 back in the day when, when she was found after her escape in, like, Thunder Bay, Canada, that TMJ4, like, rented a jet to get some, like, got booked people on a private jet to get a reporter team out there. Wow. Because it was such a huge story. It was a nationwide story. Back in the heyday. Back, back in the day when there's money to throw around. <laughs> and get on this jet. jet and get out there. But uh, those tickets on sale right now at Milwaukee Repertory Theater.